Welcome to What Are You Reading, a podcast dedicated to leadership development through a commitment to reading. This is your host, Justin Hahn. Mr. Rich retired in November 2005 from the Central Intelligence Agency as the Associate Deputy Director for Operations, ADDO. As the ADDO, Mr. Richer was responsible for leading the National Clandestine Service's worldwide collection and operational mission. Throughout his service with the CIA, Mr. Richer developed close and productive relationships with military counterparts, particularly in the area of special operations and the U.S. Central Command. Mr. Richer enlisted in the Marine Corps in 1972. He was commissioned in 1978 and served on active duty until October 1983 as an infantry officer. He was recalled to active service in 1991 for Operation Desert Storm, where he served as an intelligence officer. After retirement from the CIA in November 2005, Mr. Richer worked as the Vice President of Intelligence at Blackwater USA, the Chief Executive Officer of Total Intelligence Solutions, and is now a senior partner with International Advisory Partners. Sir, thank you for joining us on the show today. What are you currently reading? I'm rereading a number of books uh, on the Middle East. My uh, specialty and my background has been the Middle East. So I'm rereading Beirut to Jerusalem by David Ignatius, The President's Daily Brief, which is a recent book about how presidents read the PDB, the Presidential Daily Brief, uh, which contains current intel, uh, both uh, actionable and uh, analysis. I'm reading uh, some great biography. I redid General Mattis's biography just because he was the epitome of leadership. And I believe the book is, is a must read. So I'm reading that. And then on the side, I read uh, some science fiction. Uh, books that uh, have messages. I'll give you an example. Starship Troopers by Robert Heinlein. The premise is that you must do government service to get citizenship and the right to contr- uh, to vote. Uh, I'm not saying I support that, but I like the idea of you doing something, contributing something, whether it's military service, hospital service, civil service, to your government to get what the government can give you. So that's basically what I'm reading. Pretty very Every morning I do about two dozen newspapers, uh, mostly overseas newspapers. I find that the BBC, Der Spiegel, Jerusalem Times have less political bias, number one. But more importantly, I read them for what they say about the United States because they will have their biases on their own countries. But when they, when they speak about the United States, they generally do it in a more neutral manner. So uh, I'll read that vice getting my news from uh, uh, our national newspapers, which most of them have some type of political bias right now. Uh, do you have any national news entities, domestic news entities that you use uh, religiously? Yahoo News. And, and I'll tell you why Yahoo News. It pulls in together all the various news sources. So you can pick and choose based on headline and what you want to read. So it will have Fox. It will have the Wall Street Journal. It will have uh, uh, some of the crazy sites and some of the not-so-crazy sites. It'll have the Washington Post. It'll have the New York Times. And what that gives you is a kind of a, a feel for what is trending and what people are talking about. Uh, at the same time, I go, to, I go to Twitter. I follow a number of people on Twitter. I don't tweet, but I do follow the twits. <laughs> and, uh, and I call them twits in some cases. Uh, but, you know, I, I follow the uh, uh, DOD uh, to find out what's current in DOD. I follow... Uh, um, President of the United States to see what's on his mind. I follow the opposition parties. I follow President-elect Biden. So I understand what they're saying and where they're going so I can balance things out. Uh, the one thing I was taught in my career in intelligence was uh, is, uh, facts are important. And for me, to whether I was going to be operational or make a decision, I had to know what was going on and try to weed out as much bias as possible. So uh, I read 
basically from about 4.30 in the morning till about 9 o'clock every morning in between calls overseas in the Middle East where I still work. And by the end of that time, I feel like I'm, I'm saturated, but I'm also informed on what I need to know that day. Speaking of daily knowledge, the President's Daily Brief, you contributed to that for decades as part of your work with the CIA. Um, can you talk a little bit about the, you know, recently reading the book on it? What did that, what insights did you gain from that? And then how has that changed through, you know, through your experiences with it and uh, in the subsequent decade or so? Well, I was never a uh, PDB, we'll use the abbreviation, uh, briefer, but you're right. I did uh, collect intelligence, uh, involved in an operation which made the readership of the President of the United States, which helped him to make informed policy decisions or just kept him informed for, for, for a number of presidents. So, you know, how the PDB is handled depends on the president. Some presidents are written-focused. They want the written word, and they go through every line. What's this mean? They take notes. They'll spend hours on it. Other presidents uh, want, want to hear it. They want to hear it. They want to uh, uh, have someone orally brief them, and then they may ask questions. Uh, I'm sure that we eventually will have a president who will be less than uh, 70 years old, and that president will probably be more visual. You know, we'll have a president who understands Instagram, who understands uh, uh, visual messaging, and we'll be looking at it a little differently, uh, a little more high-tech. But what I have found generally is that taking all politics aside about what president does, what does he value intelligence or not, every president understands what's in the book, and every president takes it seriously. And what many people don't understand is that the PDB is also distributed to a, uh, a number of senior other officials. SecDef, SecState, Secretary of the Treasury, Homeland Security. So not only is the president getting eyes on it, others in the government who need to either recommend action to the president or effect action for the president are informed. Now, sometimes the president will get an addendum, which is for his eyes only, because it has something so classified or so sensitive in it. And generally, that, re that comes to sources and methods. And, and then he'll have to make a decision if he wants to distribute it to his staff. But for the most part, I have found that, uh, and I'm current with all presidents up to President Trump in terms of seeing how they handle it and do it, they've been very, very ser serious readers and consumers of the product, and that includes President Trump. How incumbent is it upon the practitioners to tailor the PDB for the principal who's receiving it? So that's a learning experience. Every time a new president comes in, there's a, a briefer who's assigned to, that, to each person. So the president's briefer is going to be his briefer for however long it works. And, and, and that briefer uh, has to understand the tone of the president, how he likes to hear things or not hear them. What are his uh, buzzwords? What are the things that will, he'll react badly to and maybe not listen any longer? What's the best way to present things? Look, we've all had relationships with someone where we understood that you basically can't tell them they look bad in what they're wearing. Uh, you have to understand, you have to coach, the, you take your words and put them in a different way. Well, it's the exact same thing with, with a president who is a human being, which is uh, the president likes to hear things in, in, in short sound bites. There are some people whose, whose attention span is 15 seconds and I move on. They don't like PowerPoint. They don't want to hear, they, they, they don't want to hear a thousand facts. They want, what are the key five things I need to know today? So you work to that. Others want to spend an hour on, so how did we get this information? And you got to be prepared to do that. The briefers themselves are analysts. Uh, so they, they get in very, very early in the morning for a product that has been prepared and edited, put in packaged. They take it in there and they generally deliver it sometime between, uh, depending on the president or the principal, 
five and seven or eight in the morning. And they're prepared to talk about every topic in there. Now, if it's an operational issue, they will defer to the operational entities and, and get someone else for a follow-on question. But now, uh, uh, what, what I've found that uh, in, when I've had to go as a supporter of a particular issue in the PDB, whether it was when we moved against Saddam, when it was uh, an issue about uh, Libya and Gaddafi, uh, what I've learned is that when you, you go in there, you, they want you to say the facts. And almost without exception, every president I've dealt with or every principal I've dealt with has said, why do you believe that? Now, they actually want your gut feeling as well. So I was, uh, uh, I think the process really, really works. Uh, and you have to understand that the PDB is pulled together from all sources. And that includes all agencies. It's a pretty fulsome product. And as that product gets more and more technical because we collect information in a much more different way now, how you put that information forward and how you validate that infor information is even more important. I'll give you an example. Uh, when I started in the, uh, the agency after I got out of the Marine Corps, almost everything was uh, from humans and some SIGINT, signals intelligence or human intelligence. H human intelligence is the hardest of the intelligence because you have to convince someone to tell you something which is basically committing treason against his host country or convince him to do something which could get him killed uh, for doing it or his family executed for doing it. Uh, technology makes it a lot easier to collect different types of in information. And because we have become so driven by technology, the volumes of what is collected is such that how do you take that volumes of information, parse it down to what a principal who may be 50 years older than you are can understand. So it's a great challenge, but it works. It may take a month or two or six months to make it work for that principal that you have, but it works. Going back to the process a little bit, so as a, as a human collector, a uh, generator of intelligence, sending it up to an analyst to uh, distill down and then bring it to a, to a principal. Is there a fear that there's a distillation of the original product there? So look, I th there, are pro there are procedures in place and there's firewalls in place to protect the source and the method. So for example, if I have a source that tells me that President Putin of Russia is going to send troops back into Ukraine, then information will get processed to analysts who will try to validate it based on SIGINT, comments, or whatever INT we're using at the time or that validates it. And then when it goes into the package, it will say how it was acquired. It will say humans, but it won't say humans acquired in this country from this source, but it may say human acquired from a source who is reliable or as a new source. So, this, so what they will do is they will describe the source without giving the source away. And our government, historically, has been remarkably good. doesn't matter the politics uh, of the issue, because there are issues which one political party might like to see and other may not. Sources and methods are protected. And that's still a felony of, uh, uh, of U.S. law to give up sources and methods. But no, uh, sources and methods are protected. And uh, I've never had a source blown or compromised by my own side by the U.S. side. Changing gears a little bit, you brought up General Mattis's book. You had a unique role in the original Gulf War. Can you talk a little bit about reading it from 20, 30 years later, uh, how that had to feel, and then having been there, been on the inside, knowing these people personally, uh, can you give us some insights on that? Well, that was an interesting time for me. I was the uh, deputy chief of a CIA station. I left the Marine Corps after 11 years of active duty. I entered the CIA in the uh, early 80s and stayed in the reserves. Generally, because the Marine Corps at certain levels was aware that I was in the CIA, they gave me great assignments when I uh, would do my uh, w 
active duty, usually in headquarters Marine Corps. Uh, well, in 19, at the end of 1989 and uh, 90, when Desert uh, Shield started, uh, when Saddam invaded uh, Kuwait, the um, agency and the Marine Corps got together, and the Marine Corps was looking for people who had expertise, officers in the reserves who had expertise in the agency who could help them prosecute the war against Saddam. Uh, and the, at the agency at the time, there were two of us uh, that, that actually had kept active in the reserves uh, who had the capability and who served in the Middle East. Uh, one was not medically qualified, and uh, I was. So I was, uh, I, I was asked if I would volunteer, uh, and I was voluntold I would. I uh, reported to Headquarters Marine Corps on a m Tuesday morning flying in from my overseas assignment in the Middle East. Uh, I met the Commandant uh, and the Sergeant Major in the Marine Corps. They wanted to make sure I still looked like I could wear a uniform, uh, and I could, thank God. Uh, I had no uniforms with me. I came in, and some, some, uh, a very nice uh, friend of mine from uh, the basic school years before suited me up so I could at least go in and report to Headquarters Marine Corps because everything was in storage. Uh, and uh, I passed, uh, and they told me they wanted me in Saudi Arabia by Friday. This was a Tuesday. So I did all the things you would expect a Marine officer would do. I, first of all, I found out I was no longer a captain. I was a major. That was good news. Uh, uh, they hadn't caught up with me. I didn't even know I was eligible. I went down to sick bay to get those, that, those qualifications uh, checked, and I found out that because my shot records were overseas, and remember, nothing was really automated at that time, and I wasn't in the DOD medical system, I had to have every shot given to a new officer. I don't want to exaggerate, but there were a lot of shots. I felt miserable for about three days, but they, they gave me all the shots. Uh, I got all the uniform gear. By Friday morning, I, was, uh, I flew commercial with a weapon on U.S. air down to uh, Norfolk, got on a, uh, an aircraft with a bunch of guys from SEAL Team 6, dev group, and was in Saudi Arabia Saturday afternoon. I arrived. I was put into a human intel cell. I stayed there until after we prosecuted the war. Uh, and the Marine Corps kept its promise. 48 hours after we, the cessation of activities uh, of the fighting, uh, I got by-name orders, and I was flown back to the States. Now, it took 48 hours for them to put me on active duty. It took 45 days for them to get me off active duty so I could get back to work. But it was a great experience. I was involved in human operations. Uh, I understood uh, the region. Uh, I had served in the region uh, in those countries. So I understood who we needed to talk to and how we needed to talk to them. For me, it was just uh, what the Marine Corps could do and what it did do in terms of uh, taking care of me, taking care of my family, and keeping its promise. And the agency was the exact same way. Uh, someone called my wife every Friday uh, from the CIA to say, uh, your husband, as far as we know, is fine. He's doing great. Uh, they were talking to the uh, Marine Corps uh, in Saudi Arabia, and the Marine Corps did what it's supposed to do, which is got me employed. I'll give you one vignette, though. We, the Marine Corps, went to Desert Storm wearing those horrible black leather boots because we didn't have desert boots. The Army did. Air Force did. Civilian contractors did. The Saudis did. Iraqis did. We didn't. And I was with a unit of about uh, 45 people. And the CIA officer in charge, uh, station officer, came to visit me from uh, Riyadh just to make sure I was fine. So I, he was wearing desert boots, and he saw I wasn't. And he said, uh, you don't have desert boots? We, got them, we can get them for you. Uh, and I said, I can't get desert boots if my, the Marines can't have desert boots. So he said, find out their sizes. So I called the first sergeant. first sergeant talked to, got all the Marine sizes. And because it's the CIA, within 72 hours, two pairs of boots for every Marine in their sizes showed up. 
then we were the only unit at that time besides a bunch of general officers who had desert boots. We got in trouble for that, but it was that's just what the CIA could do and the Marine Corps let us do. So, Can you differentiate that, I guess, between the second war in Iraq, OIF, interaction you had with the services at, at that time, a much higher level, you know, strategic level in 2003, 2004 timeframe. Uh, can you compare and contrast the two? In the 2002, I took over uh, the Middle East Division, which uh, for the CIA control is responsible for 22 plus countries to include Iraq and Saudi Arabia and Afghanistan, Pakistan and other countries. So I was involved at the strategic level uh, dealing with the Marine Corps and the forces that were going to go in, both Army and Marine Corps, Air Force, all ground elements that were going into uh, Iraq uh, that, that required CIA help. And we actually uh, engineered where we had a CIA officer, a, one of our paramilitary officers, one of our Arabic-speaking officers, or one of our officers who were involved, knew the region, embedded at the division level, and in some cases in the regimental level. Uh, we had officers that went in, when the Marines went into Baghdad Airport, uh, we had Marines with them. So we could go in and set up a station. And the Marine Corps was great. They allowed us to go in front of their units to uh, meet some of the dissidents that we were working with against Saddam, to work the mullahs, uh, to see if we could get them to quiet down the tone of the, the, of the messaging against the Western forces. And so they were, that we were embedded in the units, Marine units, and it was, it was a great a symbiotic relationship, a great partnership. I don't think there was a difference between the two wars. Look, uh, I think that uh, when it comes to, to war fighting, brothers and sisters in arms embrace each other. Uh, there's some healthy competition. And uh, yeah, people always say that we go into war uh, better dressed and better armed than, than, than our military colleagues, uh, but we're st almost every one of us came from the military. The Marines that I put in Marine units uh, were all agency officers who served in the Marine Corps. The ones uh, that I put into the, uh, the Army units were served in the Army, and I'll give you an example. One of our senior, uh, when General Petraeus was a major General Petraeus, and he was in charge of northern Iraq, uh, and he was, was, was in Mosul uh, in, sta in a stationary position, he was really not happy with some of the people that were working with him from the intel side. We found one of our officers who had been a platoon commander under him when he was a battalion commander and assigned him to him. That relationship took off. So the one thing we're good at, that the CIA was good at, was understanding human relationships. And human officers, human officers should understand how to get along with just about anyone because that's your job. So we put the officers we thought would work best with the people that we needed to, and then we brought in our skill sets. So we can do things under our authorities that the military cannot, whether it's running assets, uh, whether it's uh, some of the capabilities we use today, drone technologies and other technologies, running sources to, to find people. So for us, it was, a, uh, it was a great marriage. It was a great partnership. And while it was not similar wars, it was a very similar relationship with both sides working with each other to get in and get out as quickly as we could. Uh, along those lines, you mentioned earlier the overwhelming noise that has to be sifted through to find the, the true nuggets. Um, has the role of human intelligence evolved to the, to the necessary level to maintain its relevance and preeminence, or has it taken a back seat with this technological revolution that has occurred? So what's changed for humans is that we've bec it's become more and more focused. So 30, 40 years ago, uh, when we, we, didn't have the, we didn't have cell phones, we didn't have the, the, the ability to, 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 to intercept at will, to collect information as well at will by technology, human became very, very important because uh, that's how you found, you could find out more that way because human people collected the information. Couldn't remotely access a computer back then. So you needed a guy who could go in and play with, with the computer 
and download stuff and bring it out. You had to have someone go in and take photographs of stuff and take it out because it was a different world technology-wise. So what's happened with Humit is we become very focused on what human can do. And human, a human being is the only one who's going to tell you intentions. So, you know, uh, it's great to read Putin's, have someone who can get you Putin's uh, telephone calls. It's great to understand that technology can get you uh, maybe what someone's saying by email. But what is in Putin's mind regarding what's going on in Belarus today? What is in Putin's mind regarding huh, what's going to happen here when a new president takes over the United States? What's in Putin's mind in terms of his relationships with China? Or, give an example, what's Putin's mind in terms of what his relationship with Assad in Syria right now and Iran? Well, those are intentions. And many times you, you don't know an intention until it's, it's, it's said and it's not written. The only person who can get you that is someone who's close to that person who's a human. You're, you're no longer looking for uh, a junior officer at a foreign embassy because that person won't have the access to the people you need. You're looking for key people who will get you access to someone who will give you information which allows you to understand will they use a nuclear weapon. And uh, while you can get the technology which gives you a picture, understanding intentions, you have to have a, someone talking to someone and you have to get in the human mind. So humans still remains the most critical to me in terms of, of intelligence disciplines because intentions, plans, and the ability to influence. I can't influence a computer. Yeah, I can, I can hack it. Uh, we can hack it. We can uh, make it have all kinds of problems. We can play with people's election systems. But I can't convince a human being to do something unless I'm sitting across from him in many cases or I'm feeding him information or I'm somehow influencing him by a person. And that's why human's critical, and it will never go away. How critical has human relationship been in the normalization of relationships between Israel, UAE, Morocco? Has that been entirely a personality-driven thing, or was that a situational, this was the right thing based upon national interests at this time? So I think it's a, it's a great question, and it's a combination of things. It's the timing. COVID had a major impact on the, regional, uh, the, the economy of the region and the politics of the region. And people realize that there's a need for them to work together on a number of things. Number two, it's a personality. So look, while I've been involved in the peace process going back to the 80s uh, in one way or the other, whether it was supporting them in the field or actually being in discussions uh, in the presence of Yasser Arafat and others. And there's always been a great personal commitment on the part of our leadership in this country to bring peace while I don't agree with everything that was done with this, the, the peace accord we have now, they took it to a different level. They invested the, the name of the president uh, and his special envoys to go in there and push it, and it was received. And part of it is that, look, we're, we're, we're far enough away from what happened in the 60s and the 70s. We're far enough away to understand that the nationalist groups, which caused the friction and the turmoil in the Middle East, have migrated and transformed into religious extremist groups like Al-Qaeda. Well, Al-Qaeda's not really religious, but uh, ISIS and other groups. And that's a threat. And they're transnational. They don't live in one country. So how do you fight a transnational threat? Well, you fight a transnational threat by working transnationally, working with partner countries. But I think it's important to understand that at the same time, besides the economics, time, the interest of the, this current, our current administration to get this done, it's also the guy who's to the east, Iran, and particularly Israel, uh, but other countries are aware that Iran is a threat. And while that threat is questionable because people really don't know what intentions are in that case, there needs to be a regional alliance against Iran. And that's what this is part of. The Saudis 
who will have a peace pro, uh, treaty with the Israelis, I believe, in the next six months to a year. But the others, it has to do with their political interests uh, and the fact that they have a serious enemy, which is Iran, who's expanded its influence in the Lebanon and Syria, has a partnership with Turkey and Qatar, and they see this as, okay, we have a Shia-Sunni issue. So it's become a, uh, a necessity. So that's another reason for it. And the other reason is uh, pure political. So Morocco announced this past uh, recently that it had uh, was creating relations with uh, Israel. And, and with that, they're getting a major arms deal from the United States, which they couldn't get before. And they're going to get uh, recognition that they, are the, uh, this, they have sovereign control over the uh, Polisario area, a part of Morocco, which has been in, dis in dispute for years. And the UN is, is trying to treat as a semi-autonomous zone. The UAE, God, I was it, I forget, was it 35 or some ridiculous number, billion dollar deal, including our F-35s. So they got a great thing out of it, which they would not have got without this deal. You know, it's, it's goodwill in part, but these, these relationships have been established the way they are now because of the politics, the economics, the defense issues, and the political issues. Circling back to Secretary Mattis, General Mattis's recent writings, he came out with something, I believe, in the Atlantic that talked about getting back in line with our partners. And I think the line that he used was America first sounds like America only to our partners. Do you think that uh, that is something that will change in the coming administration? Is that something that we can project will be a, a greater part of our foreign policy? I, I don't believe we should be involved in endless wars. Uh, and and uh, I do believe, though, that the American flag is a symbol that perhaps not everyone currently understands recognizes the impact it has in the Middle East. Uh, democracy, which is what we have fostered and tried to foster overseas, has brought hope and has lifted spirits uh, and opportunity through many countries in the Middle East. I think that the process we have, look, I think we did have to focus internally on our own country, but we can do both. And I think that what we're going to see with this new administration, based on who they are saying are going to be in cabinet positions if they get approved, and based on the experience of people like uh, President-elect Biden, uh, the experience of uh, who he's recommending as his SECDEF, the, uh, General Austin, I think it is, uh, who he's recommending as uh, domestic policy, Susan Rice, for the UN, I think what we're going to find is that we're going to both focus internally because we're going to have to. We have to get ahead of COVID. We have to defeat COVID. Uh, that's a serious issue. We've got to get our economy back to where it was. That's a year and a half. Uh, the experts are saying middle 2022 before we actually see where we're supposed to be. But at the same time, our absence in the foreign field is having an effect. If you look at what's going on, and particularly in uh, Egypt and Syria where, and Saudi Arabia, where human rights violations are in the increase, where they don't worry that we are going to slap them on the hand for uh, jailing dissidents just because they're dissidents, where we are uh, undermining free press and free talk in those countries because we aren't addressing it because we've decided to let them do what they want to do and, and focus on America first. So I believe we have to have a, a, a melange, a mix. And that mix has to be, uh, we, need, we need to spend as much time as possible getting our country back to where it should be and trying to address some of the great divides we have politically in this country. You know, we have states right now who are talking about state representatives who say maybe we should succeed. Maybe should there be a union of these states? Look, we're the United States of America. Our strength is in the unity and our character, whether you're a Southerner, a Northerner, an Easterner, or a Westerner, or whoever. And I think that that strength is seen as weak right now. And since we're not, we are seen as weak and not involved. And whether it's the climate grouping, whether it's uh, trade pacts, I'm not saying we have to sign on to everything that people want us to do as an international society. 
But if we're not talking to them, we're not at the table. And if you're not at the table, you're not playing. And we need to play. As of this recording, we are about 10 years on from the start of what was eventually termed to be the Arab Spring. There's been some positive developments and some disappointing changes that were made, I think we could say. Uh, can you talk about prospects for continued improvements? Has our policy potentially caused, caused a misstep, I guess? So I think the Arab Spring has, uh, has sprung back. It's, uh, it's sprung backwards, uh, to be very specific. Uh, I'm out there. I talk to them. I talk to leaders in that area. And what's happened is that they, they don't believe Big Brother, Big Democratic Brother, is watching anymore. So if you, if you look at what's happening, and particularly Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, which is part of that, that, that area, uh, Syria, uh, what you're seeing in those, those major countries, uh, Yemen, rule of law is not important unless it's your law, the guy in charge is law. Autocrats are in the ascendancy. There is, they're not even giving a passing reference uh, to democracy. And they're doing that because we have said we aren't going to be involved. Uh, the State Department said we'll no longer grade people on their human rights. And they also believe that they see reflective in what our press says we're saying here in the States is that we don't respect the rule of law either. It's my way or the highway. And I'm not making a political statement. I'm just saying how it looks overseas. If you read the overseas papers and you see what we're saying in terms of the election, the recent election, other things, you realize that they're saying oh, this great democratic experiment, which was the United States, isn't. Why are we worried about following that? We'll follow our own path. So I think what's happened with the Arab Spring is some countries embraced it as much as they could. Jordan, is, to me, uh, which is a country I'm closest to, has been a great example of that. They've created a parliament. They've created a constitutional monarchy. They are in free trade agreements. They're trying to, to take to a standard the living and the political aspirations of the people in their country. They're a poor country. They don't have natural resources. They don't have oil. So it's a battle, but they're, they're, they're maintaining. Now, there's some hiccups. There always is. Other countries who are rich, who have all these great capabilities, who can afford to be a little more open, are actually retrenched. Uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, Sisi, and Egypt. Uh, the UAE, Qatar, are doing a better job of it, but again, it's it's a mixed bag. Northern Africa, Tunisia's trying, Tunisia's trying, but again, they're economically strapped. And when you when you have a strapped economy and you can't afford to give public works projects or public support to people, then you have disenfranchised people, like the the, the vendor who uh, burned himself because the he could not be he couldn't take care of his family and he couldn't take care of uh, uh, himself. So I think that we have to get reengaged. We have to get uh, more involved, and we have to set the example. And, you know, all of, you, all of us who've worn uniforms understand that what we tell our troops is that we are ambassadors in uniform. How we act and how we, what we do is reflective of what we want people to think of our great country. And part of the problem we have right now is that we've lost a lot of that. I'm worried that the drawdowns in Iraq uh, in Afghanistan, our earlier drawdowns in Syria, are going to have major impacts because that old adage is that uh, one is none, Two is one. Well, the adage of having basically uh, enough security forces to stay inside a, a hard wire is not enough to get a job done. So either we do the job right or we get out completely. We are sending a sim signal to the people there that we aren't invested anymore. 2020, in many senses, has been a, a year of distractions. Coronavirus, a contested election, um, just to name a couple. Can you give some context for how important a player or how important the United States is in places like the Middle East? In line with that, has that distraction put us in a position where we are going to have some long-term 
negative impacts, uh, or it will be very, very difficult to recover from those this year of distraction. So, look, I think that uh, overseas are a number of countries, e uh, NATO, uh, most member states of the EU, almost all the countries in the Middle East, almost all, not all, are, have been holding their breath and waiting for the new administration. Uh, they're hoping for some consistency. They're hoping for relationships not by tweet but by action. They're looking for relationships which are sustained and consistent and will last longer than a hurt feeling, which is what they believe sometimes affects today. They also uh, want to make sure that it's not based on bottom, bottom line, and they're, uh, and they're worried that a lot of decisions made by this administration was to fuel the finances of people related to defense industries or to, to others that were close to, the, uh, to their side of the house. I don't buy that, but I understand why they say it. It's critical. It's critical that we show the flag again. Russia has become the biggest player in the, the Levantine, particularly in the Syrian war area, uh, and Lebanon. Putin's uh, basically advising and leading uh, that Arab country. There's untold uh, humanitarian crisis in Yemen. We've walked away from that and trying to influence it. Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and all the other groups which are spurned and created by those, those two main groups are in ascendancy in Africa. And we are drawing down and, and, and walking away from allies who are there working. They went there based on a commitment with us to work. So look, either we do it or we don't. I believe that we'll be embraced if we come back. Because I go, every time I see us abroad, I see an acceptance that America generally is a force for good, generally is a force for good, and they want us there. And we've been absent. And nature abhors a vacuum, and we need to fill that again. So you brought up Russia and Iran a few minutes ago. How do we impose costs on, on these adversaries when we've created a vacuum by leaving or perhaps have told people we're going to stay and then do something different? Um, is it possible to impose costs in that environment, or do we have to physically be there uh, with some sort of uh, foreign policy footprint, whatever that might be, to really impose costs? Well, for, for China, it's basically an economic engine. Uh, China's not looking forward to physically occupy the world. Uh, China wants to economically rule the world uh, and commercially rule the world. And they're getting there by uh, forming trade pacts. There was just a major trade pact uh, signed. Uh, China's part of Japan, Indonesia, Philippines. Guess who wasn't there? The United States. Australia's dealing with China. These are allies of ours. Because economically, you need to deal with it. So if we're not part of that process, how do you influence it? So look, we are the big bear. The American economy is amazing. Uh, and, yet, and even at the worst of times, our economy is not doing too bad compared to many places in the world. That's our ammunition with the Chinese. You know, yes, we have to show a force in the South China Sea. We have to have a presence there in the military side of the house, and we're looking at how we do that. China's not looking for a military confrontation. China's looking for an economic and commercial confrontation, and we walked away from that. And, we're, and as long as we walk away from that, they're, gonna, they're moving in. They're going to take more and more relationships, which gets harder for our American business people to get involved because unlike many countries, the U.S. government doesn't take its business people and push them and endorse them. Our embassies abroad, it always surprised me. We can't go in and say, you should deal with Boeing. You should deal with uh, uh, this American company in, in Georgia because we're not supposed to be seen as that's, there's too much of an ethical issue there. Foreign embassies can do, I mean, foreign countries do that all the time, and the Chinese are great at it. So with the Chinese, it's economic and commercial. We have to rebuild those relationships uh, in that part of the world uh, at the same time maintaining our military posture, but mostly rebuild those relationships and look, review our trade arrangements with them and make it to our benefit or at least neutral. And we've let that atrophy.
With Russia, that's a hard one. Putin understands strength. And Putin came into this administration thinking he had, for whatever reason, uh, a dynamic relationship with the, with the White House and that, that would let him get away with just about anything. And he has just about got away with anything. Yes, we've cautioned them. We've PNG'd some of their people. We've put uh, sanctions on their finances. We really haven't bothered them. If you look at what they did in, in, in uh, the Ukraine, they got away with it in Crimea. They gave away with the, with the push on some of the uh, autocrats inside uh, Eastern Europe. With Russia, it's, it's not going to be a war, but someone has to look them in the eye and say, we're not going to let that happen. So with Putin, it's not economics. And in the Middle East, we have to stand up to what they're doing there. Uh, last question for you. Any thoughts or final words of wisdom for our DoD Reads audience? So look, I think the next year is going to be a year of transition. We have drawdowns across the board. Troops will be coming back from places. They're probably going to get yo-yoed where they're going to go right back within six months to nine months with a new administration, I believe. Uh, maybe in a different format, in a different way. Our servicemen serve. I'm not worried about our men and women of our armed forces uh, doing their jobs. I'm worried about consistency. I think we need to know what we're doing. We know there's going to be a change order. There's a change order all the time. But I think we have to understand what our focus is. We also have to understand that we're appreciated and there's some investment in us. And I think that there's been a lot of uh, big words thrown out over the last couple of years about the military. They love a particular person. We have to demonstrate that. And whether it's uh, making sure that they're, uh, they're paid appropriately, whether their families are taken care of, uh, whether they get the right uh, health uh, care, but more importantly, they get the right leadership. And I think leadership is probably the greatest shortfall I've seen in the last two years. We need dynamic leadership who are vested with our military, who are going to lead them appropriately and stand up to any abuse of the system uh, that tries to exploit the fact of this great U.S. military. So I think it's going to be a hard year. I think it's going to be a change year. I do think, though, that this time next year, there'll be people will be breathing better, whether it's because of COVID is under control, we have a vaccine, whether it's we have a consistency in government, we have a consistency in foreign policy. We are seeing respect re-earned in the Middle East and in Asia and in the world, and that our military understands where they're going to be tomorrow. If I'm getting a tweet which says, I'm pulling you out next week, that's where I see the change. Consistency, stability, and appreciation. Well, Mr. Rob Richard, thank you for uh, coming on the program. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of What Are You Reading? A podcast produced through partnership with DOD Reads. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, subscribe, and share it. Leave us a comment with your answer to the question, what are you reading? Also, visit dodreads.com for free books, book reviews, interviews with your favorite authors, and many more free professional development resources. See you next week. Thank you.